Well, today we begin a new sermon series titled Tweets from Scripture. Yes, feel free to laugh. Since Twitter limits you to uh, your, your media posts to 140 characters or less, um, each sermon this summer will originate from Bible verses of 140 characters or less. Today's sermon is titled Hashtag God's World. The scripture tweet that we're going to study is the very first verse in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, God declares, This is my world. If you want to know the answers to life's big, big questions like, Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? What can make me truly happy? How do I live with purpose? Well, then you need to start with Genesis 1, verse 1. Let me read this verse and pray, and then we will get started. Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, that this is your world that um, a divine, perfect, loving being uh, has brought this all about and that you have made yourself known and that we can know you and experience your glory to be transformed um, in beauty, in your image. May our time this morning be thoughtful. May we truly be humbled before you so that this meaning of this text can have its full effect upon us. Fill us with your spirit uh, so we may know you and experience your grace, we pray. Amen. Are you familiar with the Hans Christian Andersen short story, The Emperor's New Clothes? <laughs> it's a remarkable short story. It's a, it's a story of an emperor who is really completely vain and self-absorbed. He cares more about his own clothes than he does for the care of his own people. At one point, some swindlers come seeking to make a profit off of his narcissism. They tell the emperor that they have this special cloth that they can weave. It's so spectacularly beautiful. It's so stunning um, that no one has ever seen anything like it before. But there's one hitch with this cloth that they're able, this fabric they're able to create. Only people who are fit for their office and who are intelligent can actually see it. The emperor's like, I really need these clothes. One, they'll reflect my glory. And, but then also, um, I will know who around me isn't fit for office and who isn't intelligent. I'm going to, yes, sign me up. How much do they cost? I shall pay. He takes the bait. He orders the new clothes to be made. And so he sends these, he, he wants to know how the progress is going. So he sends in his man of the cloth. <laughs> uh, no pun intended. He sends in his minister. And the minister looks and he sees this loom and he sees things moving around and people active and doing stuff. But he, he doesn't see any fabric. But he doesn't want to come across as one who is unfit or unintelligent. So he says, wow, bravo, great work. And he reports back to the king, things are going splendidly. You won't believe what's coming your way. 
Then the day comes for the king to put on his new clothes and to go out in a big parade through the city. And everyone in the town has been, been told that the emperor has some new clothes that only smart, intelligent people uh, can see. And so the emperor gets his new clothes, but then he, he cannot see them. He comes completely worried. Am I unfit for office? Am I unintelligent? Well, surely I can't let on. I can't let anybody know. And so he goes, wow, these are beautiful clothes. <laughs> can't wait to go on parade. And he does. And of course, the people, knowing you have to be intelligent to see the cloth, they're all applaud him. Beautiful. Great, king. You look splendid. Best clothes I've ever seen. But then a little boy exclaims, but he hasn't got anything on. And this little boy's honesty causes a, a chain reaction. And, and the rest of the people watching the parade, they, they also agree, you're naked, you have no clothes. The emperor, who was shivering by this time, suspects that they were right, but thinks this procession has to go on. The last words of the story are, So he walked all the more proudly than ever, as his nobleman held high the train that wasn't there at all. All right, now you don't have to read the... I've just told you the whole story. There you go. Um, even though this was written in 1830s, th- tell me, doesn't this story describe how we live today? The human condition that we all share is one where we're all prone to live like the emperor, We are born wanting glory for ourselves. We fear what others will think of us if we we don't have our lives together. And so we, we put on outward shows. We act like everything is okay. We tell ourselves that we really are in control of our lives, that we really are on a path of success. And so we live and we breathe for the next exciting life event or big purchase, believing that it will somehow robe us in glory for others to see. And that it will somehow bring us happiness. How wrong we are. C.S. Lewis describes our shared human condition with these words. Listen closely. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. This first tweet from Scripture, we see God says something. He says, look up. Look up to me, the God of glory. If you would but stop the parade for just a moment and look with honest reflection upon your nakedness, then I will clothe you. And not with clothes that fade, I will clothe you with my glory. A glory that will transform you from the inside out. A glory that will not just round you out or fill in the cracks, but a glory that will make you an entirely new creation and set you on a path of meaning, purpose, and yes, happiness. Now perhaps some of you are thinking, Mark, how do these 84 characters, including the period, uh, tell us all this? (laughs) Well, this morning we're going to investigate Genesis 1, verse 1. We're going to draw some insights. And in doing so, I think we'll come to this proper conclusion. This is God's world. God alone is the majestic, glorious creator. Therefore, 
glory, meaning, purpose, and happiness are to be found in Him. And so the life properly lived is one where we seek our happiness not in our own glory, but in the glory God alone can bring into our lives. Does that make a little bit of sense? So we're going to divide our time looking at two things from this passage. One, we're going to look at how it informs us, and then how it transforms us. First, it informs us who God is. Now, theologians, we have a lot of different words and things that we throw around, but I'm not claiming that I'm a great theologian. But anyway, uh, you know, we discuss things about God, we, we, and, we, and God has these certain things that we call the attributes of God, his, his qualities, his characteristics. And, and, uh, and these, these attributes can be subdivided into two categories. We have incommunicable attributes of God, and then we have communicable attributes of God. When, when God made man in his image, he communicated certain attributes to us. God is creative, and we can be creative. God is wise, and we can be wise, hopefully more often than not. A God is loving, and so too we can be loving. But there are certain attributes that God has that you and I will never have. For instance, in our passage, there's one glaring, incommunicable attribute of God, namely God's eternality. God is eternal. He has always existed. This universe that we inhabit, it had a beginning. You and I, we had a, a beginning. My beginning was on March 19th, 1966, or like maybe nine months ahead of that, right? But we all had, it, had a beginning. God has no beginning, nor does he have an end. God is infinite. God is eternal. I remember before I became a Christian, I became a Christian a little later in life, around age 29, and um, I remember to have discussions with Christians, and they were intent on like pointing to the creation around and like, come on, Mark, don't be dumb. I mean, all of this creation points to a creator. And then I would always have this argument, and I was just like so smug, and just I was like, all right, so here it comes. Here's the one. It's just going to knock away all your arguments. You ready? All right, so if everything that exists has a creator, then drumroll... <laughs> who made God? Of course, we didn't drop mics back in the 90s. We, didn't, we weren't that cool. But right, so that was my argument. Who made God, right? It never really occurred to me that the God who created all things created time and space too. And so he isn't bound by time and space. He's always existed God is eternal. Genesis 1.1 informs us this important truth. God is the one who began it all. There once was a time when there was no such thing as time, nor such things as stars and sand and elephants and gravity and sunrises and molecules. There was once a time when nothing existed and then, pow, everything that came into existence came to be. God created it all. This speaks of another incommunicable attribute of God, his omnipotence. That means God is all-powerful. Try to wrap your heads around this. God didn't take things that already existed in creation and then form things out of them like stars and planets and trees and people. There were no building blocks 
Creation is what we describe as ex nihilo. That's Latin meaning out of nothing. Out of nothing, God created all. We see this right after verse 1. We see God creating things simply by speaking words. God says, let there be light, and there was light, and planets, and stars. He just speaks creation into existence. Oh, the majestic power of God who's able to speak creation into existence, ex nihilo. Now, have you ever wondered why God created the universe? What's, what's God's motivation? The correct answer is that the universe exists to manifest and display God's glory. Which means, sorry to say, God didn't create the universe for you. How does that sit with you? Some people take issue with this. Some people say it makes God appear needy. Like, like he had to create the universe in order to fulfill something that was lacking in him. That he needed to create the universe in order to, to be happy or content or complete. That he had some unfulfilled need. So he just created the universe. But consider this. This, this conversation never happened in heaven. <laughs> uh, hey, son. Yeah, father. Hey, son, I was thinking, I don't know. Uh, it's getting kind of boring up here. And school's out and all. So <laughs> I was thinking maybe we head to the garage and we can like, do a father-son project together. Oh, yeah, you can... You can come too, Holy Spirit. You can come. All right. I was thinking, what if we, what if we like, what if we like created a universe and like we can create like things and and animals. We can we could even create a creature who's like made in our image. That'd be awesome. He could like reflect our glory into creation. When that like that would be like really fun. Talk about like having some good memories from that moment, right? What do you think, son? Yeah, okay, Pops, that sounds cool, but can I just finish up this game of Mobile Strike first? No, nothing like that ever has happened, and there's no conversation like that in heaven. Wrap your heads around this. God is infinitely happy. There has never been a moment in God's existence when he lacked anything. God has never needed anything. And remember, God is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So he's never lacked for community. God has never been lonely. He didn't create us in his image to alleviate some relationship longings that went unfulfilled. Sadly, people also have this mental image of God. He's up in heaven and he's, and he's like all ticked off. And he's up there tapping his toe in frustration. It's like he's at the deli counter at the market and he's just all ticked off because, like, no one's taking a number, you know? People think that God is just, like, frustrated and unhappy and just, like, waiting to, like, throw lightning bolts at people. No, God is infinitely joyful, he's full of delight. His entire being has always and forever been filled with infinite joy and happiness and peace and wisdom and power and glory. He's never lacked anything. God is infinitely happy. His entire being is filled with infinite joy and delight. Which is why we must find our joy 
and our delight in no other source but him. Whoever seeks happiness in the God of glory will never go lacking. Do you believe this? I mean, do you really believe that? If we really did, we wouldn't be putting on so many parades. One person who got it was King David. David ends Psalm 16 with these words. It's verse 11. He says, he's speaking to God. He says, you make known to me the path of life. Meaning, purpose, sense of direction, sense of well-being and identity. David is saying, you make known to me all these things. My life is wrapped up in your glory and because of that I experience all that makes my life worthwhile. But it doesn't end there. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. When we come to God to experience his glory, to be transformed by his glory, we're not coming to someone who has a lack in any way. Do you believe this about God? I mean, do you really believe this? Is this the one to whom you pray to? And do you seek meaning and purpose and happiness in him alone? See, the Trinity lacks for nothing. Infinite joy, majesty, love, and happiness have forever and ever been enjoyed by God. God had no need to create the universe. But he did. Why? We keep asking that question. Um, I think... A simple way to describe it is that God's glory just cannot be contained. See, God didn't didn't create things in order to add to his own glory. But rather, creation displays God's glory. Uh, Our wonderful regular drummer uh, um, is Scott Hewitt. And I don't know if you guys know this, but Scott Hewitt is an even more talented painter I have often said this, every home in the Hamptons needs a Hewitt in the house. And now that I get a commission, I say it all the more. (laughs) Scott's work isn't just good, it is gloriously good. You look at his work and you think, how on earth did he create that? And when you talk to Scott, here's what he'll say, like, I don't know. He's like, when I paint, I just clear my head of all thoughts and distractions, and I just go, and it just flows out of me. In a similar, but sorry to Scott, fashion, on a far grander scale, God's creation overflows out of his glorious being. God's glory cannot be contained. The short verse informs that this is God's world. He made it. We are the creatures. He's the creator. He created it all for his glory, not yours or mine. How does this transform us? Here's what I want us to see with regards to this. Glory moves you. It transforms you. 
Um, if you're familiar with the CrossFit craze, um, then you know they do some really unorthodox uh, exercises, right? One of the exercises utilizes things called kettlebells. Kettlebells are these giant metal round weights, and they got this handle on there you can kind of hold with two hands. One of the exercises uh, has you squatting on the ground with the kettlebell, and then in one big movement, you just pull it up over your head, and then you repeat that like 15 20 times. And the thing is, though, if your form isn't spot on, what happens is instead of you moving the kettlebell, the kettlebell moves you. And sometimes it's quite silly. In fact, if you Google, or not right now, but you YouTube kettlebell failures, you're going to start laughing at the videos you see. People being pushed around by the weights that they're trying to tame. God's glory has a similar effect upon us. It moves us. In fact, check this out. I'm not making this up. The, the Hebrew word glory translated here is kavod. Kavod is often translated with the English words glory or splendor. But in the Hebrew, the, the root meaning of the word is heaviness or weightiness. God's glory has a weightiness. When God's glory comes upon you, it it moves you to joy, to happiness, to tears, to worship. It moves you. It has an effect upon you. It transforms you. And never in a negative way, always in a positive way. God's glory must move us, but not to worship God creation. Many a person has stood before a sunset or a beautiful ocean, and and instead of delighting in God the creator, they just delight in the creation experience. I have a good friend of mine. He's uh, usually here on Sunday mornings. He's he's an attorney, so he got called in a case. But uh, Colin Astorita, most of you know him. But um, Colin, before he came to faith in Christ, he used to sit on his surfboards on Sunday morning out in the ocean, thinking, I don't need to go to church. I worship out here. I worship the, the waves and the wind and the, and the sun. Perhaps you've thought this way before, too. Do you see how incomplete that is? Actually, I don't like to use this word very much, but you see how ignorant it is to worship the creation instead of the creator it's kind of like a kid who gets to go to the Cleveland Cavaliers basketball game and personally meet LeBron James and get a signed basketball but all that the kid is really interested in is the basketball he has a chance to meet the greatest basketball player of all time and if you disagree with me just ask LeBron okay (laughs) the greatest basketball player of all time instead all he wants is the signature ball that's what countless people do with God the entire creation has God's signature upon it How foolish and silly for us creatures 
to celebrate creation, but not the creator. So the glory of God must move us to know God himself. Perhaps you're like me before I came to faith in Christ. Uh, if you're a Christian, I'd say, I would tell you I was, a, I was an atheist, because that just sounded like really cool. But uh, in my honest reflection, uh, I realized I was an agnostic. You know? So what is an agnostic? An agnostic is someone who says, yeah, there may be a God, but who knows? We can never really know for sure. So I'm agnostic. This text even corrects our agnosticism. How, you ask? Thanks for asking. Um, how does this text demonstrate that God is knowable? Because we're reading it. <laughs> These are his words to us. God in his transcendent glory delights in man made in his image so much that he speaks to us so that we can be redirected back to him. God in his grace has spoken. He has let us know that he is the creator. If you know anything about the Bible, you know, you know Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. He penned them. But it was God who led Moses by the Holy Spirit to pen the words that he did. And therefore, these are God's very own words to us. And think this through. God gave us these words so that we can know him, not just intellectually, but relationally. God's glory can rub off on us. His meaning and purpose and happiness can become ours as we draw near to him. God wants us to know that he isn't a distant creator who only speaks creation into existence. He's also a creator who draws near to his creatures whom he has made in his image. And it's true, unless God speaks, we really can't know much about him. It's just kind of how it is. Thankfully, God has spoken to us in his holy word so that we can come to know him up close and personal. Now, it's a great thing to know God as we see him as the creator of his creation. But the greatest glory concerning God is not in his creation, but in his grace, his grace towards us. Imagine you're about ready to be married and miraculously, I don't know how, you're able to see into the future. And you see that in just a few short years, your spouse is going to be unfaithful and will leave you for another. What would you do? I don't think anyone here in this room would go ahead with the marriage, right? We'd say, no way. Thanks for the heads up. Hashtag available. <laughs> But check this out, not so God. Try to wrap your heads around this, my friends. Seriously, let's get just serious for a moment. Before God created anything, he knew what would happen. God is omniscient. He knows everything that is to come in our history. Why? Because time is in his hands. It's as if past, present, and future are already done before God. God knew what was to come. He would know of the unfaithfulness of the people that he made in his image. He, he would know that they would reject God and turn to live for their own glory. He knew that one day the, the world would be populated with billions of people who take God for granted and who go off on parades just displaying their own glory for the world to see. God knew this ahead of time. 
And, and yet he went forward anyway. Why? You know, it's really hard to know. I'm not here to tell you I know all the answers. Some theologians say, you know, that God had to make mankind with a free will so that our love would be from our own volition towards him. But also, if you make such a creature, there's a possibility that they would turn and fall from you. Others say that somehow the fall magnifies God's glory. And we can kind of get it, right? I mean, we wouldn't know how wonderful and splendid and glorious God's grace is unless we had great need for it. I don't know exactly. But what I do know is that long before time began, God the Father determined that even though man would turn from him, he would remedy it. That he would send his own son into creation so that God's glory could be restored in the creatures made in his image. Tell me, is that not a good God? Is that not a glorious God? Is that not a God worthy of our worship and our devotion? Earlier, Danny read from uh, the beginning of John's Gospel. You can just flip. It's on page two in your bulletin if you want to. But... um, Did you notice the similarity between Genesis 1 and John 1? They both begin with the words what? In the beginning. Genesis says that in the beginning, God created all things with words. And John further clarifies that. And he says, in the beginning was the word with a capital W. John is telling us that this being, this word, was and is God. (laughs) That this word created everything. And that in him was life for mankind. Glory, meaning, purpose, happiness. That he's the light that shines into our darkness. And he goes on to say that this word came to his own people that he created, and his very own people rejected him. Then he says some good news. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Then John tells us the most amazing words in all of human history. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, it's one thing to behold the glory of God in creation, but it's a far, far greater thing to behold God's glory in the grace and truth of His Son, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
consider this thought. Allow it to sink into your soul this morning. Jesus left heaven where he was perfectly clothed in glory, in splendor, for all eternity filled with infinite delight and joy and harmony and peace. Robed in glory, surrounded by angels, praising him night and day. That was Jesus' existence before the word became flesh. Consider this. God himself, who is outside of time and space because of his great love for his creatures made in his image, entered into time and space. And the time and space that he entered into isn't all that great. It's full of hardship and sorrow and in, in disease and in death and in betrayal. God of glory emptied himself, stripped himself bare, took on human form because only God in the flesh can fix our glory problem. The word became flesh, entered this sin-filled world, he came to his own people, and his own people rejected him. Further than that, they, they killed him. They killed the Son of God. And unlike the emperor and Hans Christian Andersen's tale, Jesus allowed himself to be stripped naked, bare before the whole world, and hung on a cross, The only thing that covered his flesh was his own drying blood that was shed for you and me. Oh, the precious blood of Christ, pure and holy, cleansing and good. It was shed for you and me if you would but believe. And his blood has the power to bring us back into a relationship with God. By turning to faith in Christ, God pardons the prideful parade of your life. And astonishingly, he brings you into his family. And the very glory, meaning, and purpose, and happiness of God becomes yours by faith. Remember our problem is stated by C.S. Lewis. Human history is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Jesus came so we may find our life, our joy, our purpose, our meaning, and yes, our happiness in the only being that can give us that. A heavenly Father, the one who's welcomed us in Christ. Have you trusted in Christ to do this for you? Don't delay. If you haven't, you can do that today. This is God's world. It's his creation. It's for his glory. And we were made for glory. Don't get me wrong, we truly are. But not a, not a fading glory that we create ourselves. We're made for an eternal glory that only God can give. Maybe therefore be committed to only seek it there. 
May today be a day where our eyes are open to this wonderful truth. May today be the day where we abandon all hopes of trying to clothe ourselves with our own man-made glory. And may today be the day where we behold the glory of the only Son of God who came for us, full of grace and truth. Let's pray. It's true, Father. This is your world. What a comfort it is. How satisfying it is to our souls to make that admission. It gives us hope. It it transforms us. It, It changes us. It does not leave us the same. We acknowledge that that transformation is only partial. Um, We need you to continue that work by your spirit to transform us more and more into the image of Christ, that his glory may be seen in us. We long for the day in which we see Christ face to face. And on that day, we shall know him. Uh, We shall see him and we shall be like him. Until then, empower us by your spirit to hold fast to the glory that you can give and the happiness that is yours, we pray. Amen.